Look, it's an honour to be able to do this for the Coaches Association. I said to Glenn when he asked me if I could uh, do something, I think always uh, it's always good to hear from other people and, 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 you know, for you guys to ask me the questions that I can really give you some um, feedback on how I've dealt with certain situations over the years uh, rather than me just waffle on about different things that may not interest you. Uh, so, you know, I, I, came, I said to Glenn, you know, at the end of the day, for me, football is just not, these days, especially just not about tactics. Obviously, tactics are a, a big part of the game. Um, but one of the big things for me now is man management and how you get the best out of the individual, how you get the best out of the team <clears throat> and get the best out of people. Um, I learned the hard way many, many years ago. and. Uh, you know, uh, and you always, one thing that uh, I've always tried to take along this journey with uh, with what I've been doing is whenever you make a mistake, you learn from it. Whenever you lose a game, you learn from it. It's not the be-all, end-all. If you make a mistake, you shouldn't put yourself down and you shouldn't, you know, look at yourself as a failure. It's just a learning experience. And you probably could say out of just in general life, you learn uh, the, the best time and the best moments that you can learn things is when you make mistakes. And I've made plenty. <laughs> and uh, the most important thing for me is then making sure that I don't do it, uh, do it again and, and try to move forward. So, you know, if I look at uh, a full season in general, and, and Glenn's given me these three topics that, that he'd like uh, me to speak about in leadership, culture, and crisis management. Leadership for me is just is, is something that's obviously very, very important. Everyone is looking for leadership. Every All players are looking for uh, a pathway set for, them, uh, set for them and also then with behaviour. Now... You know, first, for, first and foremost, when you are recruiting, so I can only really talk about, you know, where I've coached at the, uh, at the Mariners, Sydney, even with the national teams years ago and the national team now. Planning and preparation is, is probably the two biggest things, the, key, the two keys for me, that when you're planning the season, then uh, is obviously the big thing is recruitment. And, and recruiting the right players, getting getting the, the right quality people in place. I do believe that a great culture is built from great people. I've got rid of many players over, over my time uh, uh, coaching that haven't uh, fitted and haven't uh, really, really fitted in the culture in the right way. And then on the coach's side of it, I'm a, a coach that probably from the outside I don't look like it, but, but on the inside, uh, communication is really the key for me with players. Every every video session is is uh, always positive reinforcement to the group. I would never do a video session where it would shame a person. If it is a negative. Uh, anything negative during a video session of the the way the person's played or the the way the game the way he's made mistakes, it's a one on one. Uh, I drag him in one on one, and we will sit down and we will go through the learning process. 
of why he's making mistakes technically or tactically and and uh, helping the, helping him fix it himself uh, with himself so you know with the with the leadership side that's what people are looking at and and the, the crazy thing is about leadership is you don't know you're a good leader you, th- you you just think that it's just normal well it's not because all you people are here on this phone that uh, on this zoom uh, call you're all leaders in your own way and you're all great leaders, and people are looking at you for leadership, and they're looking at you to, as I said, show them the way. And uh, you know, so on that side of it, uh, the leadership side of it for me is, is crucial. The cultural side of things is is all about good people. You know, if I had my worst season, I had, I, I didn't recruit good people. I recruited, I had players in the squad that were selfish. I had players in the squad that was all about them. It wasn't about the team. For me, team is number one. And getting those players to think that way is 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 so important. And I'm, I'm a coach that likes to get in the players' brains. And, and really the psychology side of things now with social media is is so important that, you know, it's, uh, you know, they, they read the social media. They're addicted to social media. It's about trying to get, for me, it's about trying to get it, getting them off it. But then understanding, them understanding that it's just other people's opinions and the most important person's opinion that is a, a, the one that they need to listen to or the one that they want to follow is, is a coach's um, opinion. So that uh, that uh, side of the cultural side of it, and then the crisis management. I thought that would be a good one to speak about, as as uh, at this moment that we are in a crisis. For me, uh, with the, uh, dealing with crises, whether it's player crisis, um, media crisis, boardroom crisis, fan crisis, whatever, it's uh, it's for me. It's always about dealing with the situation as soon as it becomes, as soon as you smell something that is not right. And as I said before, if you don't deal with it straight away, it gets bigger and bigger. Now, whether it's a player's crisis, as I said, the amount of players that I've sat down one-on-one and spoken to about their behaviour, their attitude, their body language, things like that, that is not good for the team, is a full-time job in itself, um, whether it's uh, a media crisis, then you have to roll with it. But also there, I do believe that when you have a media crisis, the more you shut up and say nothing, then the more people will believe one side of the story. So then dealing with that is a different way. Uh, I've been... <clears throat> with with a, a boardroom typing, I invite myself to all board meetings. And I go to every board meeting because the last thing that, and I've always done it, is because sometimes CEOs, they manage great upwards. And below, then they communicate, but they manage very well upwards. And if the message is not getting through to the board that you want to get the message through to and, and the message that needs to get through to the board about whether it's injuries, about 
whether we're losing or whatever it is, then they're not hearing potentially the real story. And that way then it can, um, it can stop a boardroom crisis or at the same time can keep you in the job longer. So the crisis, uh, uh, dealing with crises for me is, I, I love it. <laughs> I love dealing with crises because it's always a great challenge and it's a great way to, to set things straight. And it's exactly like we're going through right now. I believe in this coronavirus crisis is going to, we're going to change our game. And the game of football is going to be great after this. We've got a clean sheet of paper, nearly. We're ready to go ahead and make changes and then get everyone on board. So dealing with crises is, uh, is always a joy. So I thought if I just touched on that way of my way, I, you know, as I said, it's uh, it's probably better that you guys can ask me. I, I've got as much time as you guys want, but ask me any type of questions about coaching and, and everything, and I can answer it any way you guys like uh, to give you some of my experiences in the past. And, uh, and, and we can move forward from there. So a question from Gary Cole. Gary, if you could come on and just ask your question regarding developing a culture from board down. Yeah, thanks for coming on. on. Uh, yep, no worries, great, great, great to have you. Um, I, I think well, everyone's got a culture within their club and their team. <laughs> we, all, we all like to think that, that it's important that within the, the team and that team bubble, or whatever you want to call that, that that's set by the leadership of that and that comes from the head coach. First, I guess there's a couple of, a couple of questions there. Um, do you think in your experience it would be better that the culture is a whole of club culture so that acceptable behaviours, thoughts, views, opinions, the way that we're going to act and react comes from the board down and impacts everyone as opposed to just just the, the team or the first team or the group of teams? And secondly, have you ever experienced that in football? Yeah, look, Colsey, I, I, mate, um, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I've experienced, uh, like, wherever I tried to, uh, wherever I go, most important thing for me is the culture. And, um, and it does start from above. And, you know, and what I always try to leave is a legacy. And... And with that legacy is, is the cultural side of things that the team is the most important thing. I remember Goose Hitting saying, again, once to, one time to me, don't let the board stuff your job up. Don't let them do it because they will if they can. And it's your job and you have to – it's a 24-7 job and it's something that you need to manage yourself. So, that, again, that's why I went to the board. Uh, I go to board meetings because it's important that they buy in exactly the same way to the team environment. And, you know, when I went to the Central Coast Mariners, um, they were training on, on pitches all around the Central Coast, on parks, and they didn't have goalposts, believe it or not. They didn't have goalposts, and it was – I couldn't believe it. And so one of the most important things was was sitting with the board and Peter Turnbull and saying, right, we need a, we need a pitch. We need – Goals, of course, but we need a home base. We need somewhere where the players um, treat it like it's their home. And so we set up uh, certain things 
that the, the players, uh, we, we fed them breakfast and lunch. We, we took money out of their salaries. We got them to buy in they, into that type of thing, which then builds more mateship because they sit around and have meals together. No mobile telephones at breakfast and lunch, right? Communicate. Communication is a, is a big key. And then, and then the cultural side of things then moves forward. When I went to Sydney FC, I couldn't believe what I walked into there. Del Piero had his own dressing room. And the rest of the players had their, their own. Uh, their, uh, one, one dressing room for the rest. So they had this one guy who was a special player. Well, that, that, that one, that's never going to work in, in my view. And it's about that, that Del Piero, you're in the dressing room with the rest of the others. He left. I let him go when I came to Sydney FC because of some of the things I, that I saw there. A lot of it was built around one person. And it pisses off the rest of the players over time. So it's all about then players 1 to 11 are always happy because they're playing. I work harder with players 12 to 23 in communication and caring about them um, so they're ready to play when, when they are ready. But Sydney FC was, you know, the first year that I had a, the, the CEO was signing players. Right? And I love Tony Pinata, and he will tell you this. Uh, the CEO was signing players. The CEO was controlling the salary cap. And I was like, wow, well, this, this doesn't work this way. And I had, I had a fight on my hands to get the salary cap taken away for me to control the salary cap, for me to control the recruitment, because I said, well, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not coaching your team. I want to, I'm coaching my team. And that team is the one that gets set out. So then the board bought into that. Tony bought into that very, very strongly and, and agreed with it then. And it was something different uh, for, for Sydney. Um, but again, if you look at Sydney today, they're still the same as what they were uh, when I left. And, and again, it was about having good people around you, great staff that get on very well. Um, the board, for me, it's always important that the board cares and they show their face at games um, and show the players that, you know, we care about you. We want to be involved. We, we, we're here to help you. And, you know, so the, that, that side of it. <clears throat> and then, as I said, with the recruitment side of things, Gaz is – football's a small world when you, when you really – when you get involved – when you're really involved in it. Like, I could ring Mark Yanko to ask him about Philip Holosko, who played in the same team as he did in Turkey. And then I could ask Holosko how Bobo was, who played in the same uh, Besiktas in Turkey as a person. Then I, then I could ask, I would ask the player over the phone, you can see his qualities on the video. You can see his qualities, all the, all the foreign boys, even the Australian boys, qualities, you know, just watching them play. Then you look at the physical aspect, right? So the technical aspect, you can see. You look at the physical aspect of, of how he, um, you know, repeated sprints and, and how his endurance and, and speed is. And then tactically, you look at what he's good at. But for me, the big thing is this, is mental. Because if he doesn't want to do all that, the, the brain will stop that. So when I'm, 
asking and talking to Bobo, for example, or a player, I say, for example, a question, so how will you feel if you're on the bench and we win 1-0? If he says, well, I, I won't accept it, then I just move on. I don't want to be, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not on the bench. I'm not a bench player. No, but if you say, if Bobo says, I'll be happy we won, that's the most important thing, thing is a team has won. Okay, great. That's the type of person I want. Someone who's going to work hard for the team, share the accolades and share uh, those great experiences and move forward. But, you know, as I said, guys, the, the, the thing about Sydney when I first went there to Sydney was it, the cultural side of it was, was pretty, pretty poor. And it was not, not Del Piero, fantastic guy, fantastic player, but it was driven around one special player and it pissed off the rest of the players. Now, Del Piero would train on his own at times. He didn't even train with the team. How can you expect him to play with the team on Saturday if he's not training with the team and things like that? So, yeah. Okay. Um... Uh, Andrew Campbell, if you could just ask yours just on how you deal with unique, different characters who might not quite fit in. Yeah, so, um, yeah, the the culture is important. Yep. What what do you do with a, an individual who you could see being something to the group who doesn't quite fit in? I, uh, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I, I will sit down and speak with him probably once a week, twice a week, and get him to to understand the situation understand that the team wins together. We, we can't be 11 individuals. We've got to be one team. So, you know, I've had plenty of players that have not been easy, but it's about getting the best out of them every day. Most, most of them are winners. They all want to win. So that's not... The, 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 the problem at all. If there's one that is really, really that you can't change, you've tried to change and you've tried to get him on, 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 on track and tried to get him think the other way. And as I said, I communicate. And, and at the end of the day, I've sat in rooms with him and there has been yelling at, at each other, right? And, but I've also got rid of players that you just can't change. And I've paid them out in a salary cap system, mid-season, got rid of them because they're never going to, they're never going to change. They're never going to change. So the red flag for me around recruitment is when you see a player who's had potentially 10 clubs in eight years, that, that straight away is a red flag because there's a reason why he's had 10 clubs in eight years. That's because he's probably, he's been a pain in the ass in the dressing room. Thanks. Uh, Danny, your question flows also. So could you just ask your question regarding dealing with off-contracted or disgruntled players? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Arnie, I was just wondering how you would deal with someone uncontracted towards the end of the season but still want to get the best out of them. Well, you can have a chat with him about your performance will determine where you go next. So change it around to this team needs you and this team, and it is all about the team, but at the end of the day, you're off contract and we want, I'd love nothing more than for you to stay. 
but your performance from here to the end of the season will determine whether you stay here or you move somewhere else. Otherwise, if you sulk, you don't play, you're sitting on the bench, you're watching, your price will go down. So what would you rather? Most times out of 10, nine times out of 10, yeah, I want to play and I want to do well and see what happens next. Does that answer the does that answer the question? Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Dan. Uh, Kat, Kat Smith, if you could uh, regarding your question regarding the media and the, the board. Yeah, thanks, uh, Glenn. Graham, just if you can elaborate a little bit more about, um, I guess, the narrative that essentially you have to spin or control, whether in crisis or not. Um, to ensure that, that the right message is being received, whether that's the media to the wider community or when you're working with the board? Yeah, I, uh, I don't read newspapers um, and I don't read and I'm not on social media at all. So, you know, I get told things, obviously, that, that people write. I have no problem picking up the phone to a journalist and, and, and having that conversation with him because most time the journalist is, is writing an opinion piece so you know you can have that conversation uh around that a media media are there to do a job and and they're, they're there to sell their story and we can't be involved in their story they can write nice things they can write bad things but at the end of the day <clears throat> i've always had a, a philosophy that cat that the media are always waiting they're like seagulls hanging around for a feed. And at some stage in your coaching career, they will turn on you. So it's not a matter of uh, them not doing it or, or when. It's a matter of, uh, of time. So, you know, it's, you know, you could make the World Cup. You could win the World Cup. And you look at Jose Mourinho uh, when he's at, you know, Chelsea and, and, and Ancelotti. They win the championship the EPL, four months after, they're getting the sack. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the media side of things is, is something I say to the players and, and, and that, that don't read it, get off it, as I said, social media. But when it comes to the media side of things, I will pick up the phone if they're saying, especially if they're writing stuff that's not true and say, you're completely wrong. You're completely wrong. And... That way, then you can deal with it. with a bordering crisis. You asked, did you cap? Yeah, Graham, you sort of touched on it that yeah. you like to have a, a physical presence in the meetings. Yeah. But I guess, in other terms, when you can't be there, I guess the power of communication, which you've already touched on, to ensure that your narrative is is clear and that. Yeah. I'd chat. I'd, I'd, I'd chat to the so at Sydney FC, even here, uh, Football Australia. I'd chat probably once a week with Chris Nicker. Uh, when I was at Sydney with Scott Barlow once a week. Um, I like them ringing me match day to ask what the, what the starting lineup is and, and to show interest and care. Um, you know, I'm in contact with board members, like here, uh, again, at Football Australia, Joseph Carozzi, Remo Nogarotto, uh, Bresh, uh, Amy. And as I said, I would rather physically myself go to a board meeting and just for half hour to give my side of the story or to be able to answer any questions that they want 
because otherwise, again, if they if they don't hear it from the horse's mouth, they will just make up their own story and start thinking different things. And if the CEO, who's not a, and if he's especially not a football person, then he's not going to pass on the right messages. And then what happens then is that you've got to, as I said, you're either going to get the sack or they're looking to move you on. And, and it's only, and for me, everything is, there, is just down to communication. Communication is, is for me in management, in coaching, in everything is, is about communication. Thanks, Graham. Does that, does that help? Yeah, brilliant. Thanks, Graham. Okay, thank you. Ron, Ron Smith, if uh, just uh, lessons learned, Ron, if you could just ask oh, your question, okay. please, mate. Okay, um, but the question was, what lessons have you learned? You know that sort of stick with you. Um, and if you think you've you've said enough about that, how would you describe your leadership style? Um, First bit's about the lessons. Yeah, look, I, yeah, the lessons, Smudge. Wow, you know, the best lesson I ever had was the two thousand seven Asian Cup. Right, and people will talk about it and have talked, spoken about it, and I saw Mark Viduka came out last week. But that was, I was nowhere near experienced enough to deal with big players with egos and they weren't prepared to work for each other. Right. So that was the biggest lesson I learned was, no, nah, they've got to do it my way. They've got to join together. They've got to be a team as one, all 23 players. My, com my communication at that Asian Cup was terrible was terrible. So I would make a decision and not and not say a word to anybody. And then just thinking, oh, they'll get over it. So even today, if I don't start a player, I'll give him an explanation why. Okay. So if players 12, 13, 14, 15, especially like if I was not going to start Aaron Moy, for example, for the Socceroos, uh, before the training session, always the day before, a game, I always do the, the, the starting lineup. I don't hide it because my experiences over the years, even when I was a player, is of, of mental preparation. Mm. The players want to know. I think the last thing a player wants is the stress and the anxiety of uh, match day of, I wonder if I'm starting. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if uh, I'm going to play today. Well, I would always, and I do it today, before we do the tactical session the night before the game uh, against the opposition, I will pull a player or two players or three, whichever ones I'm not starting, and say, listen, I'm not going to start you today for this reason. And it can be tactical, but understand it's not personal. Yeah. I love you. You're a, a fantastic player. I'm just going to go a different avenue today. But you will probably come on, so prepare that it's going to be like, you're going to start the game. Now, in the past, earlier in my coaching career, I would have just, oh, I don't want to deal with that. You know, I don't want to go and talk to a player. I don't want to just, yeah. he has to accept it. And I just wanted it all to go away. Mm. And then I learned that, well, that's not the way, the right way to do it. And, and it's the same with, you know, I, I'm a type of person that thinks too much that, if something is on my mind, my gut tells me everything. 
my gut makes my decisions, big decisions. And I always follow my gut. And, <clears throat> and for me to be able to focus more on the game and the, 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 the tactical side, I need to remove all the issues a day or two before or match day early. Otherwise, I'm still at... <laughs> I'm still at five o'clock, two hours before a game, still worrying about how do I tell someone this or how do I deal with this situation? So I always uh, do that way. What was the other question, Smudge? The other thing was how would, how would you describe your leadership? Oh, you know? Yeah, look, I'm a, from the outside, I probably look like a grumpy old you know, <laughs> man that uh, doesn't communicate. I love a laugh. And I know that. And every... <laughs> Every player I've probably coached would say, you know, I, I, I just I want to be a father figure. For me to coach at my best, I need to love my boys, like my kids. Yeah. And I just feel that this these days with social media and, you know, my day when I played, it was two newspapers and one TV station. And I was always worried, even then, about, Oh, what are they going to write? Now, these days, everyone has an opinion. Yeah. And so caring for them, first and foremost, Ronnie, as a person. I want to know when you're born, how old, how, how's your, uh, you married, have you got kids, you in a relationship? And I will get the club to send flowers to the wife or of the, of the, of the player. And as I always say, Happy wife, happy happy life, <laughs> and and just caring for the player, the individual, the person. Because, as I said, for me, you know, there is those four main pillars. There's technical. Well, when you get to the elite level or to the top level, technical, there's not much difference anymore between players. Yeah. Tactical, everyone can see it on video, everyone can see the game plan that everyone comes out with. Uh, physically, now with GPS and with everything, the data and, and everything, then with, with, the, uh, with the physical side of things, you can then track players and you know exactly what they can do physically. But the one thing for me that's the biggest is the, the brain. Yeah. Because if mentally, if the player wakes up in the morning and goes, oh, I don't really, this is a, it's a chore to go to training. You know, it's not much fun. It's, it's, uh, it's dictated, it's uh, regimented, it's no real fun. Yeah. Well, technically, he's not going to give his best. You could have the greatest game plan in the world, tactically. Mm. But if the player doesn't want to do it, he's not going to do it. And physically, and I said this to Bren, uh, uh, Brendan Rogers when I was at Celtic, I spent a bit of time with him. And we were talking about this, and he is a psychologist, Brendan Rogers. When you sit down with him, he is a psychologist. And he said, all right, on the physical side, if you've got 10, 10 people that can sprint 100 metres at exactly the same time, nine seconds, 10 mm -hmm. seconds, sorry, and they can do, all 10 can do exactly the same time, who wins? <laughs> I said, the one who wants to win, wants, wants it most. Yeah. He said, exactly. So the only thing for me that's still very, very individual is a brain. And 
I really enjoy getting into players' heads and getting getting them, uh, in you know, switched on. But again, my way of leadership is communication, is caring, and as I said, I need to be happy. And because when you put a player on the pitch, and you know this better than anyone, Smudge, yeah. you have to have one hundred percent trust that they're going to do the job. Otherwise, if you got if you don't have if you've only got fifty percent trust in in someone, you've got to build that to a hundred percent. If you've only got fifty percent, you're probably not going to play. So a hundred percent trust when they go on the pitch that they're going to do their job and they're going to win, and getting them to believe in themselves and believe in the team, and their teammates will cover them at all costs. So the one thing, one individual thing again is getting the brain clear. Brain clear because everyone has personal life and professional. And for me, I always talk to the boys about balance in life. How's things at home? Well, if it's going to be shit at home, and how's, what's going to happen to your form? Yeah. It's going to drop. So it's going to pull it down. If everything's good at home, then you're probably going to play better as well. So it's all about getting a balance in life. And I ha I've had players that have just had babies and you can just see on their face that they can't, they haven't been sleeping. I've sent them home. <laughs> Daniel McBreen, go home, have a sleep. You know, you, like, you're, not going to be, you're not going to be any good to us today. Just go home, have a sleep, and we'll see you tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> But caring is, is uh, for me, is, is crucially important. Like, and even in these times like today, you know, I'm, I'm on FaceTime after this with some of the boys overseas and I've got a Zoom meeting tomorrow with 20, 20 of the players because, uh, you know, everyone deals with situations differently. Every individual is different. No one's exactly the same and they all need to be treated differently in a way of... In my term, being being a father figure to them. Yeah. Uh, Leo, just on your question regarding building blocks for culture. Yeah, thank you. I might actually change my question since Graham, you've pretty much touched on um, what I was after with that question. So my new question is: How have you had to adjust and change your approach to creating good team culture, and how you show leadership, having moved from dealing with players in a full-time environment and now working with players in short periods of time on the national scene? So basically, what strategies have you put in place to create that good culture? Yeah, look, um, I took over with the soccer, so I can give you a story. Um, and I think, I think one of the best leadership qualities is storytelling. People like stories. And if you can include that in leadership, it's, it's, it's great. I took over a culture with the Socceroos that was, it was very regimented. So, you know, I've, one of the biggest things I've tried to do, and, it's, and, it, and I can see it's working, is when you play for the national team, there's two ways players can look at it. One is fear of failure, fear of letting the badge down, or one is enjoyment. And enjoyment of being recognised as one of the best players in your country. So with the, with the cultural side of things, with, the, with the, the Socceroos, I said to them in Turkey, the very first camp, I know, I'll know 
we're on the right track and on the right path when you boys want to get the first flight in to camp and the last flight out. Because for me in this, uh, with the, with the uh, Socceroos as a part-time, when I say a part-time job, the players are all different, come from different cultures. So if I go back to those four pillars that I said before, if I look at the players technically, they're all very good. If I look at them tactically, well, we've got to come up with a game plan in two days, two training sessions. Uh, physically, I believe that they have to be playing at clubland because we can't control their fitness levels. But mentally, if I can get them to enjoy every camp, and when I say enjoy, again, mateship. Some of the best stories all of you people on this uh, Zoom would be able to talk about is when you've had success and, you, and who those mates were you had success with. So on a, on, on a football side with a national team, tactics, really technically, I can't do much. Physically, I can't do much. Tactically, we get one session. Right? So for me then, it's all about communication. And it's all about the mental side of things, of enjoyment, of coming in to a, an environment that feels like their family. Yep, so all the, all the mates, as soon as they turn up, they're all happy to see each other and they're all, they're all willing to run that extra metre for each other. Now, that's sometimes not the easiest to do, but when, you get, when I can get Aaron Moy smiling all the time, that's a big success. Because he, <laughs> he's, he's not a big smiler. But, again, it's about getting all the players in a relaxed environment. There's no such thing in my world. I hate using the word fear. It's the worst, you know, fear of failure, fear of letting your family down, fear of letting your teammates down, fear of letting your country down. Like, that's what they're thinking. So I said to them, when you go out in the tunnel before a game, and there's 90,000 people at ANZ Stadium, and it's the last game to go to a World Cup. What are you thinking? And I asked the players individually. I reckon 16 out of 23 would have said, I just don't want to let, don't want to let the country down. I don't want to let the family down. Well, so what do you think like that for? Why wouldn't you think this is showtime? This is great. 90,000 people come to watch us play. Let's go out as a team and enjoy this and have, have some fun. That way then you remove all those, all those uh, ideas of fear of letting people down. So on, is, uh, on the cultural side of things, as I said, it's, it's, it's about enjoyment. When I was at Sydney FC, it's a, different, it's a different kettle of fish. Then it's a lot of planning. So here with a national team, it's a lot of planning, but, not, uh, but it's 10-day camps, two days, so you're planning flights, hotels, all that stuff. Where at Sydney, the planning was around the tactical side of the game, the game plan, the way we wanted to play, uh, playing each player to his strengths, not playing players in... in uh, where they're going to show their weaknesses. And then, again, having a leadership group of 
three or four players to help you with uh, leadership in the dressing room, making sure everyone's on time, making sure they dress the right way, you know, even with the Socceroos now, you know, making sure that, <clears throat> you know, they're doing everything as a team right. And there's a fine system in place if they're late, if they don't turn up on time, if they do the wrong thing. And as I said, it's, it's not being odd for me to kick someone out because that, that one person is the one that can drag the whole team down. Trust me, just one. One can kill the atmosphere in the dressing room straight away. Does that answer your question, Paul? It does, thank you. Yep, thank you. Uh, Jason, just to change tact a bit, if you could ask your question, Jason Lockhart. You there, mate? Hi, Graham. Oh. Jason here. How are you, Jason? How are you, mate? Thanks for your time tonight. No problem, mate. Um, just a quick one. You you talked about a clean sheet of paper after the coronavirus yep. virus is over. In particular, like I've coached at MPL youth level, how, how do you think we move forward after this crisis with player development pathways? Player development pathways? Yeah, player well, we development got, yep. and, and pathways. Yeah. Look, I've been doing a study on that uh, about, especially around the age groups 17 to 23, where there's a big black hole that uh, kids aren't playing enough. I truly believe that that we need to get back in line with grassroots football. So the A-League needs to get back in line with the MPL and, and, and grassroots. We, sh we shove or jam, you know, I, I, I don't believe that we should be in fear of the NRL or the AFL anymore. And we should be playing in a full calendar year. And now, if that is from March all the way through to November, that's uh, you know that for me that for me is crucial for the kids. They just need to play more football, play more games, play. Then uh, there's you know everything's jammed into a 27 weeks, 25 weeks, and <clears throat> the kids are not getting anywhere near enough football. So it's crucial for me that. When I say a clean sheet of paper, well, I believe after this coronavirus that unity is going to be crucial and, and, and it's happening now. All the state feds join together. All the people that's making football decisions, they have to treat every decision that they're making as if it's their son or their daughter because otherwise they have an effect on the kid's life. And all I want and all I've ever wanted as a coach and I used to say this when I was at the Mariners, I would always judge my coaching career on how many millionaires I can make. Because that's what I'll, that's, if I could have, if I could help 200 kids in my lifetime of coaching have the life that I've had in, uh, with football, I'd be the happiest man alive. And everyone has to think that way. You know, you've got to try and get people to think that way for the good of the kids. The kids these days get to 17 and their dreams are taken away from them, completely removed. And it's wrong. It's, it's wrong. You know, I took an under-23 team that I'll openly say, and I've said it, was probably the worst team I've ever coached. But when you look at that team, none of the kids play hardly on the weekend. 
So how do you expect kids? The, 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 the crazy thing is, and I've sat in front of the owners and state feds, that a kid can go to, uh, so in their business of what they do, they can go to school from six years old to 16, right? And they learn read, write, arithmetic, whatever. They read it. They, they learn all that. From 17 to 20, they go 22, 23, they go to university or they become an apprentice or they go to college to study their occupation that they want to do. What's the difference with football? But you're taking away, so the kids from six to 16 learn the technical side of it, you know, a bit of tactics. They put, they, around 13, 14, they, or 12, 13, they start choosing the position they'd like to play. They start getting physically stronger, 16, 17. And then there's no university. There's no college. There's no apprenticeship. Now, I, I, and that's what I say to the business people, that these kids, the pathways are crucial. And getting the kids on the park and making sure that they're playing game after game. The best way anyone can develop what I believe in any occupation is by practicing their trade every day. And football is their trade. So why are we stopping them from playing from 17 to 20, 23 years of age? I had six, I had six under 20s with that under 23 squad. So I'll just share this with you, right? Six under 20s uh, that are eligible for next, the next Olympics. I had nine players from overseas that were based overseas that were 21, 22 years of age. All right, so I had eight players from Australia. Eight players that were over the age of 20, 20 between 20 and 23. Eight. I'll tell you, if I had to fill 23 players from Australia, I wouldn't have been able to do it. And this is stuff that I presented to the board and I spoke to Glenn last week about with, uh, I, I want the coaches, everyone to be involved in this, but I, I just, I just don't understand why the cutoff age is under twenties. NPL one, Sydney FC. If you're 20 years of age, if you're 21 and you're not good enough for the A-League, sorry, career over, basically. It's crazy. We just need the kids. You know, like there is a perception out there that all of our great players went away at 18, 19 years of age. They didn't. Mark Viduka went when he was 21. Brett Edmonton went when he was 23. The golden generation, there was only four players, five players that went younger than 20. Harry Kuehl, Lucas Neal, Tim Cahill, and Craig Moore. The rest played in the old NSL. The rest went overseas after World Cups under 20s, and they're 21, 22 years of age. But these days, a 21-year-old, Tasmodokoudis, for example, he's played eight games of football in the last two seasons. How the hell do you want him or expect him to become a great player if he's not playing? Does that answer, Jase? Yes, thanks, Graham. That was good. Thank you. That was a good question. Thank you. <laughs> Emmanuel, uh, can you jump on? Just uh, 
question around how you pick your coaching staff? Yeah, um, uh, Graham, thank you very much for joining us tonight. And um, it's amazing just to have your your brain and experience. Um, I'm interested in knowing how do you, what are the characteristics that you are, you are looking at for your coaching staff, assistant coaches? Yeah. Yeah. And what's their roles in your success? Yeah, big role. They have a big role to play. Um, right through my whole staff, uh, the assistant coaches, goalkeeper coach, fitness coach, they first and foremost have got to be very good at their job. Yeah. But secondly, they've got to have the right intention of why they're there. And for me, Phil Moss is on this line. I trusted him like I would trust my brother, that he needs to cover my back because coaching is hard. It's a tough gig, right? But, and you need the right people around you that you can trust. I would always pick an assistant coach. I used to say that in case I get sent off <laughs> or in case I get ill, that team still has to function. And who can make that team function in the right way? is the assistant coach. Now, I'm very hands-on when it comes to coaching training sessions in terms of the tactical side and, and that. But the assistant coach does a, a, has a big role to play in the, uh, in the planning but also in the training sessions to separate in two groups that, and you've got to trust him. If you can't trust him, then he's probably he's not the right person. And that goes with goalkeeper coach, fitness coach, if your fitness coach is overtraining, so the biggest thing for me now with sports science and all that is the balance, again, the balance between undertrain, overtrain. If you undertrain, you're going to get injured. And if you overtrain, you're going to get injured. So to have a fitness coach that can get that balance right, that the players are recovering well um, and are re get and preparing ready for the next game, uh, uh, then... That's so important. So trust is the biggest, for me, is the biggest thing. Um, John Flores, in regard to leadership and coaching staff. Hi, Graham. How are you? Good, John. How are you, mate? Wayne good, Rooney, good. Background, eh? It's, <laughs> uh, it's a nice shirt. <laughs> um, just with, um, with the leadership group um, and choosing your leadership group, um, do you as the coaching staff make the decision? Yes. and categorise the players under different learning styles and, and um, personalities. Um, yeah, look, um, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah, no, sorry. And Or do you choose another method? No, I, uh, I always choose the, uh, with the coaching staff. I'm not a, I'm not a coach who um, dictates. I, I, I pass on responsibility to, to staff and people. Um, and... When it comes to picking a leadership group, you can just see, I, I, I think that you can just see the players who are leaders by coaching themselves on the pitch. If you were to, you know, if you were to go and stand and hide somewhere in a room, uh, in a room right, and don't, so hide in a room next door and let all the players go into the meeting room, into a meeting room, and don't turn up. Right, just say, and you didn't turn up. You would see by which players said after 10, 15 minutes, well, he's not here, let's go, right? 
They're the ones who are probably your leaders. The other ones would just sit and they'll follow. Yeah. They'll just sit still and won't say a, a word. They'll just sit and wait and wait and wait. And unless those three people, two or three people go, oh, he's not coming. Let's get up and go. What are we waiting for? Let's go. And then you, you come out and you'll sit in the foyer. Those three that walk out first will probably be the leaders that you're looking for. I just think that uh, there is a, a way that that happens uh, with the players choosing the leaders, but nine times out of ten, the followers will just, the followers are either too shy, won't say it, or will just follow the general consensus anyway. You know, so if uh, I would, uh, my, again, me personally, like even with the Socceroos, I made a leadership group with Matty Ryan, Trent Sainsbury, Aaron Moy. Now, Aaron Moy is a great leader, but he doesn't do it with his mouth. Alex Brosk was a great captain, but he didn't hardly say boo. But when he went on the pitch, he led by action, led by performance. And so, you know, there's, there's some that just talk, 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 but, you know, if you, if you sit down with three players and, like, I'd sit down to the, with a leadership group and say, right, what are we doing this week? What are we doing today? And they'd say, well, what are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing at training? Well, it's all about you three. What are we doing? If your performance, if you guys go out in the pitch in a training session and you're not leading by example, if you're not raising the intensity and the quality, because training is, for me, training is about a purpose. Every training session has to be have a purpose about it. And it's not just a, go, a matter of going on the park, having a kick it around, stuffing around and going off the pitch. No. Even, even when you do your grids, 5v2, well, for me, that's, you know, that's, that's a warm-up. Let them, let them do that for the warm-up. Would I use that in a full training session? No. Because you've got an hour and 10 minutes. I like short sessions. I like sharp. High intensity. Because that's what you play at. And that's what we're expected to play at. But the most important is those three leaders. You're going to raise, you're going to make sure the quality is high. You're going to make sure the intensity is high. And then... They take, they take the initiative. I think we found Ian Greener. So, Ian, are you there, mate? Yes, I am, Glenn. Thanks very much. And thanks, Graham, again for the chat. Terrific, mate, to have all these coaches listening to you. Thank you. My, my uh, question is on leadership, and you've kind of touched on it, but I'm just wondering, can you come up with a, a, a sort of a summary? How do you give yourself feedback, whether they are KPIs or just factors, how do you give yourself feedback whether the leadership for the individual and the leadership for the team is working? Good question. Um, I feel it. I see it. And you, you, and the, the, the players will lead by that example. So when it comes to KPIs, yeah, it's, it's mm -hmm. all about what do we do this week? If we lose a game, what did we do different last week? What did we do different? I'm the first one to look at myself in the mirror. 
and judge and, and look at my own performance. And I write down my own performance. I give myself a rating out of 10, but I do the same with the players, give them a rating just for myself. So you can always reflect back on four, four or five weeks backwards. For the, for the leaders, the KPIs would be about how many players went off the track that last week. Who turned up late? Did anyone turn up late? Did anyone do the wrong thing at training? Didn't train properly? The, the intensity wasn't high enough? Because, as I said, the leaders are the ones that show the way. And nine times out of the ten in a leadership group, I will have more older players, but I'll always have one young. One young player like at Sydney, I had Brandon O'Neill, who was young, to get him to learn the way, to learn off those older players from Wilkinson, Brosk, and as I said, even now with the Socceroos. I'll bring in young Mabil, young Martin Boyle, to see what the older players are, are saying. But I just, uh, whether it's KPIs or how do I rate it, it's always for me is about the communication I have with them, the feedback that they're giving me on how the week was, um, how the week ahead is looking. I wouldn't make, you know, I, I include them in decisions. So, for example, travel. When do you want to go? What would you rather go to Wellington? Two days before, one day before. But I already know exactly what I want, so I put I manipulate it in a way that they're going to agree to what I want anyway. But involving them in decisions, then that they then take ownership of those decisions and they drive it for you. Fair enough? Question? Yeah, great. And can I just ask one yeah. more quick question? In your are leaders born or can they be created? They can be created. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, again, when I, when I gave Alex Bross the captaincy, he looked at me like, me? Why not give it to Sasha Ogonowski or someone like that? And I said, because, mate, I know what they're going to do anyway. I know he's going to lead. Sasha Ogonowski will lead anyway as a leader. I know he will talk and coach. And, but I need the person who inspires most people in the team to inspire more. So I, I expect from you, Broski, this year that you'll probably give me a 7 out of 10 every week. Mate, for us to win it, I need 8 out of 10 every week. So, and again, he's not a big talker. He, uh, on the pitch, but his actions of leadership is is fantastic, and that's what I'm saying about uh, Matty Ryan. He's learning. I'm, te- I'm I'm teaching him how to be a leader and what it takes to be a leader. A leader <clears throat> is someone that everyone looks at. They look at you for an example, or they look at you for direction. And Matty is. Not that most more, not that comfortable with it. But now I've got him starting to think more as a leader in terms of setting examples. And then, as I said, I, there is people that are just naturally born for it. But I do believe that these days, especially, 
again, if a lot of coaches, you know, just wait for the finished product. And for me, uh, again, even if it's around captaincy or around playing or whatever, th- that's what a coach is for. A coach is there to help the kids or help the player um, become the best player he can be. And as I said before, for me, the first thing is the best person. Great people can do great things. Thanks, Graham. Thanks, Graham. Thanks, Graham. Thank you. So we've got two more questions, Graham, before we wind it up. Um, Duncan, you've got a fairly long question there. If you could just shorten it a bit um, and ask yours first and then we'll finish off with Gary's. Duncan Ryan? Hi, Graham. How are you going, mate? Hey, Duncan. How are you? Hey, good, buddy. Good. I, this is a bit left side for you, Graham. Okay. I, it's just... Uh, during the coronavirus thing, there's a huge hunger in the world for live sport. Yeah. Do you think we could be one of the first countries back on the pitch? And there's, I think there could be a huge marketing opportunity here. I, that could do two things. It could get some funds for yourselves coming in. Because we've spoke before about the financial constraints of coaching in Australia, coaching the national teams, and especially the 17s, 23s, uh, what happens if we don't? I just, I, them, you know. I just feel that international football won't happen for a year. It's so sad. And I'm in a yeah. position where I miss coaching so much. Yeah, international football won't happen, but the A-League, if we... Yeah. Australia will be one of the first countries clear of coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. it'll be behind closed doors. Um, probably no crowd. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, there is talk about potential, potentially end of May. End of May, getting getting things, uh, the A-League, hopefully back and started. But uh, there's still a long way to go before, you know, that, that, that happens. But, yeah, you're right. Like, <clears throat> not having any sport on TV, and, and that is, is, is quite tough for everybody. I speak to the players and I said to them, like, this is an introduction to retirement for you. Because they will never experience something like this again other than retirement. And, and then trying to get them to think about what's after football. Because a lot of players after football, elite players in any sport struggle. Struggle with retirement. Mentally, uh, they struggle big time. So, you know, for the, for the players, this is an introduction, as I said, to retirement to see how it works and, and what they can do and for them to start thinking about what they want to do after football because it's a... You know, as I say to them, you guys aren't Sir Elton John. You can't sit playing the piano for till you're 79. You know, you got to you got to play. <clears throat> you know, you can only play football to 34, 35, and you need to get on the pitch and play. But I'll, when I say about the coronavirus, I just think that you know 
we had to shut the game down in 2003 for two years, from 2005, to try and get things right. And I know that James Johnson and the board are doing a hell of a lot of work. And believe it or not, I'm probably working harder at this moment than what I normally do with the Socceroos to try and get this game great. We have the world game in our country that's a great sport and get get it right. Get all the state feds together. Come on, let's work together in this. All, all the association clubs right across Australia in the NPL. Because I believe the NPL1 is going to be our reserve grade league. So let's raise our standards. Let's become great, a great NPL1 right across the country and develop our players into being great footballers. Uh, Gazza, Graham might have answered some of your question there, but if you want to, want to just round it up with the last question. Mate, I'm fine. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. I, I guess it, talking about the uh, the young players not having enough games and Rob Sherman's, I don't know, farewell letter last week covered an awful lot of those same points that many of us have been discussing for years. Yeah. Um, have we got a realistic chance of getting these things changed, do you believe? Yeah, I do believe. And maybe how do we do that? Uh, I do believe that James is a football person, first and foremost. I think at the moment, He's probably worrying more about financial than football, but he is a football person. And, and it's great to have football conversations with someone, you know, as a CEO. I don't think we've had that for, what, 20 years? Yeah. So he understands what needs to happen. And, and that is obviously, as we talk about, getting the pathways right, making sure, you know, even, even down to transfer systems. Everyone needs to be respected for developing players. So for the junior clubs, for the NPL clubs, receiving some type of money in the transfer system of reward for developing players for the A-League teams. You know, so, look, I think that uh, in the next few weeks, you will hear of a, a uh, football development committee and the names that... I'm hearing on that a very, very good guess. Very good. Finally, there's going to be a lot of people on that that have been brought up in Australia, gone through the system, played the old NSL, played in the A-League, coached in the old NSL, coached in the A-League and, and brought closer to the game again. So I have really good, uh, as I said, like, we had to shut the game down, yes, didn't we? 2003 yep. to get, try and get things right. Well, now we've got this opportunity, this window of opportunity, and it's unfortunate through the coronavirus. But we, you know, after this, you know, I think everyone's going to put their hand up and want to help. And the organisation FFA, and as Glenn is doing here with the coaches association, you know, we need to show the way and help those yep. people and help the clubs, and help the state feds, and help everyone that we can, you know, uh, help develop some great players. Because that hasn't happened, mate, since 2005. No. You know, it hasn't happened. And 
I did a document the other day to the board. Mate, every kid born from 93 onwards, 93 to 2001, 2002, so they're 18 years of age now, and 19, they've, they've, they've not played football. They've hardly played. How crazy is it that you can play a lot of football when you're young, then when you get to the crucial age <laughs> of development, okay, stop there, no more. And when you look at the rules and regulations and you've got 10 A-League clubs in Australia with three under-23 players, three under-20 players in their whole squad, 30 players over the whole country. It's crazy. crazy. So all this stuff, uh, again, I've done a lot of work researching and, uh, as I said, 93, 94, those kids didn't make the under-17 World Cup, made the under-20s but didn't make the Olympics. So from 2012 to today in Asia, is uh, we've qualified for three junior tournaments, 17s, 20s, and Oli Roos, three junior tournaments since 2012. Three World Cups, or two World Cups and one Olympics since 2012. Crazy. Yeah, agree. So we've got to fix it. We've got a great opportunity now to fix it. And we've got people with passion. That's a big thing. Is passion. If you don't have people with passion, then everything becomes too hard. I've uh, been overruled by the president here, so Mossy's got a, a final question. <laughs> hey, um, I know how passionate you are. I think everyone knows how passionate you are about coaching the national team. We've had coaches come and go. We've had Aussies coach. We've had foreigners coach. Um, being a local, having played for the national team, now coaching it, having coached in the A-League, the old NSL, help or hindrance? Mate, I believe so much in the Aussie coaches. And if you look at these stats, so even one of these I did, right? Since the A-League started, how many competitions has a foreign coach won in, in 15 years? Three. Three, yeah, yeah. Pierre Lebarski, 2006. Levitska, 2010. And Amour at Adelaide 2015. Australian coaches, and if you look today, I'd even, I'm so pro Popovich's, Rudin's, Talley's, Corica's, these guys, and we've got plenty more out there, right? But if you, it, what I believe is foreign coaches, and I've got nothing against foreign coaches, but they come to Australia and they're, ma they're more managers and coaches. And they don't understand potentially, they don't trust, in my view, a, way, a little bit, is they don't trust young Australian kids as well, but they expect the finished product. When the kids are 20, 21 years of age, they expect the finished Because in their countries where they come from, they probably are, but they're not here. And, you know, so I look at the national team, it's crazy that uh, I, I reflect on so much back, but pretty much since 1984, since I've been involved as a player and then a coach, 
We've really only had three Australian coaches. Frank Farina, Ange Postacoglu, and me. And now I can say that all the foreign coaches, goose hitting was fantastic. But he had a, I had to witness his, his witness his contract. He had a contract. He was working at PSV. He had a contract that he could only work for the Socceroos for 28 days leading into a World Cup year. He was in, he was in Australia for two days, three days the whole time. Now, Huss's job wasn't to look below the Socceroos. His job and all the foreign coaches that have come have had, and it's the same as my contract, is just have to look after the Socceroos. But with Australians in place, that's why I'm sitting here doing this and, and trying to help with these kids. With Australians in place at clubs, Australians in place at FFA with coaching. I, I do believe we have the passion, the Australian coaches and that, that to, to help fix the game, help coach some good kids, great kids. Uh, Heather, could you just bring us home? Oh, well, um, what a momentous occasion to have you so vulnerable and authentic and to give your knowledge and to give your time to 80-plus coaches. This is not just going to go to 80 coaches. It's going to go to everybody in Australia and, and worldwide. Um, it was just such an authentic um, messaging from culture to leadership to crisis management. So, Arnie, thank you so much for your time. No um, problem, you've been amazing. And just on behalf of SCA, uh, thank you so much. No problem, Heather. It's been a privilege. And to all the coaches, uh, thank you uh, for tuning in. And I just want to say, do it your way. There is no formula that, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson did it his way and Mourinho did it a different way and all coaches do it a different way. Do it your way. And remember, it's your job. It's your responsibility and, and enjoy it. Gus, really, coaching is so good. There is no better feeling, and I think everyone online will say the same, there's no better feeling than when the game plan works and you win that game. Better feeling than when you were a player. And uh, keep believing in Australian football and Glenn and Mossy, Heather, doing a great job. The Coaches Association, and it's so good that uh, we now can have these type of meetings.